0: There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling, unsolved crimes. Episode 10 The Crooked Jaw. You'll remember in the last episode we solved the mystery of the man who fell from the Pride of Flanders in April 1994 and we determined, based on his height, that he couldn't have been the gentleman of Heligoland. But our supposition that this man entered the water on the eastern side of the UK or in the Channel probably as a result of a suicide and slowly drifted his way across the North Sea to Heligoland well that still stands up. And we focused on where that could have occurred and we took a deep dive initially into bridges but not forgetting other ships maybe harbours and piers particularly those on the eastern side of the UK and in the Channel. But on the bridges side of things Joe's analysis of newspaper reports of disappearances suggested that the Humber Bridge might be the place to start with 80% of the reported falls from bridges in our time frame reported from the Humber Bridge. In this episode the final episode of the current season we're gonna start to take a closer look of people who went missing from bridges, ships and harbours and piers. By the way On the Humber Bridge I've done a bit more digging on that and since it was opened in 1981 at least 200 people have jumped or fallen from that bridge. Only 5 have survived. The problem was so acute that special suicide barriers were erected in December 2009 to deter would be victims and it is by far the most notorious suicide spot in the UK. It is also, as the crow flies, the closest bridge in the UK to Heligoland, roughly 500 kilometres or 300 miles in a perfectly westerly direction from Heligoland. And as we found out in this podcast, that correlates exactly with the direction of the current flow. So that was the plan. But as you'll know if you've listened to this podcast. Live investigations have a tendency to go off plan, and that's exactly what happened this week. I received another message this week from a listener with what I felt were some very, very important points about dentistry. I was contacted by a lady called Josephine Nodge, based in Augsburg, Bavaria, Germany. Josephine as well as being a listener to the podcast, is a dentist. And she'd noticed a couple of unusual traits when she saw the image of the skull that was published in Desite. Her ideas really piqued my interest. So I arranged to have a conversation with Josephine to try and understand a little bit more about what she was suggesting. And this is that conversation. And I think you'll find it interesting. I am joined this afternoon by uh, Josefine Narge and uh, I'm very lucky that uh, I'm getting the chance to speak to Josefine, because Josefine contacted me about some of the aspects of the dental work in the skull when she saw the image in Desight. Josefine is a pediatric dentist based in Augsburg in Bavaria in Germany, so I'm very, very keen to speak to her. So welcome, Josefine. Very nice to speak to you.
1: Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me.
0: Clearly, you're an expert in these fields. So when you saw that skull in Desight, certain things jumped out at you, didn't they? And I'm interested just for you to describe what your initial reactions were looking at that photograph.
1: Yeah, first of all, I have to tell you, I'm a pediatric dentist. So I'm kind of trained to see these things. And I looked at the skull and I saw that he had this crossbite, which means that the upper and lower teeth don't fit together and uh, his crossbite is a posterior crossbite on the left side, which means that the lower molars, uh, usually when you close your mouth, the upper teeth uh, embrace your lower teeth, and uh, in this case, on the lower side, it's the other way. You can see that in the skull.
0: So normally, in a healthy skull, the upper teeth and the lower teeth fit together neatly in this right. case it's not happening and there seems to be some kind of asymmetry between the upper teeth and the lower teeth have i said correct. that correctly correct okay now if that was the case would that cause him significant difficulty in life is it something that you can live with Or is that something that really in every case needs to have some kind of intervention to repair it?
1: Well, as a dentist, I can tell you that it really needs intervention because uh, you would have problems with um, with your joints and uh, you would have uh, pain maybe and also of course it's an aesthetic thing you don't look symmetrical Um, your chin would deviate to one side and um, yeah people wouldn't like that and nowadays um, when i see children with a crossbite i tell them you have to go to the orthodontics and it's it's corrected very easily at at a young age Mm. Uh, You could live with it. Um, I mean, there are some famous people having crossbites, like that actor John Turturro. Mm.
0: Um,
1: They can live with it. They just look, you know, they have a distinctive um, look.
0: That's interesting in two parts, because clearly this man did not have it repaired when he was a child. He lived with it for all his life. So if what you're saying is true, and I 100% think it is, That must mean that when this person was alive, they had a very noticeable asymmetry to their face. Right. Okay. I'm
1: pretty sure about that.
0: Okay. So, and just for my benefit, that asymmetry would show itself in in which way? Would his lower jaw be to the right or to the left of his upper jaw?
1: To the left in this case.
0: Okay. Okay, that's very interesting. And if I was talking to him as I'm talking to you now, I would see it.
1: Yes, you would see it.
0: Very interesting. Well, that's helpful. Now, that brings me to another point, which is when I was looking at the mock-up that Mm -hmm. the police in Germany had produced for this man, I didn't see it there. That That was a symmetrical face. What,
1: I mean, what's what's
0: your thoughts on that?
1: That it's not right. It uh, the chin should be uh, deviated to the left, so um, like you would have like a chin more on the left side. I really think that it's not a right image.
0: Well, that's fascinating because that and because images are so critical when people are trying to identify people, something which is perhaps the most noticeable part of that man's face, seems to have been missed off the, reprodu- yes. the reproduction of the face.
1: absolutely, absolutely. And um, people may say, well, maybe they in, they didn't put the skull together right, you know, that they, they just messed up the skull. But you can clearly see that the socket and the condo are fitting together. So it's really crossbite and you can also see it in the teeth so it's, it's I'm 100% sure he had a crossbite on the left side
0: so there could be an explanation that post-mortem when they put this school mm. together they could have made a mistake and misaligned it before they took a photograph and that could explain it but what you're right. saying is actually there's evidence of this was how it was for the perpetuity of his life.
1: Yes. Yes, there's evidence in the upper teeth and the molars of the upper jaw. You can see on the left side that they're very steep and on the right side they fan out a little bit. So that's really an indication for a crossbite.
0: And that's the natural effect of compensating with the teeth for the Misalignment of the jaw, is that the way Yeah, well would...
1: it's it's not a compensating thing, it's just like the teeth would stand in the jaw because of the crossbite.
0: And you see evidence of that in yes. the image. Yes. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Now there was a second point you raised which is equally as fascinating, which is a disorder called Marfan syndrome. Could you, could you explain to me a little bit more about Marfan syndrome and, and why you think this, that might be relevant to this case?
1: Yes, um, well, I'm just a dentist, but Marfan syndrome is a syndrome um, that affects connective tissue, the fibers that support and anchor your organs and other structures in your body. That syndrome most commonly affects heart, eyes, blood vessels, but mostly the skeleton. And uh, a crossbite is very, very common in people with Marfan syndrome. You know, that Marfan people have that they're very tall and slender built. Let me just ask a question
0: there. Is is Marfan syndrome a result of being tall and thin? Uh, So if someone is tall and thin, they are more likely than the general population to develop marfan syndrome uh
1: well that's a genetic disorder so you are born okay. with it because okay. these people uh, they're usually usually marfan people are tall and thin they have unusually long arms uh, legs fingers and toes um and you can sometimes see that they have like a head that's not big enough for the tall body and they have long arms and you look at them and they they look very um, the proportions are not right and in fact I had a I had a friend in school he had morphins and he was very tall he had nothing else he was just tall and he had a very small head on his big body on his tall body so um, they look distinctive the proportions are just not right with them
0: so the reason we think this person may have a, maybe a mild form of Marfan syndrome, but 2 right. because one, he's clearly very tall, Marfan affects people who are extreme heights, and he was of extreme height, but also he had this problem with his, uh, the asymmetry of mm-hmm. his, he has a crossbite.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And crossbites can be common in people with Marfan. Exactly. Right. Well, that's very, very interesting as well, because particularly the issue with the crossbite. Not only is this man extraordinarily tall for his time, he also sounds like he has a facial look that people may remember. So there's two things that make him rather unusual, maybe, in his physical form.
1: Right, exactly. That's what I think. You well, know, it's just a
0: good guess. <laughs> no, it's not. It's better than a good guess. Uh, you're a paediatric dentist. You will have seen crossbites a thousand times.
1: Oh, yes, I did.
0: And therefore, when you saw this skull and said, that's a perfect example of a crossbite, I'm prepared to take your word for that. I think it's, I think you've put your finger on something important there.
1: Yeah, because the mockup up is not right, you know.
0: But I remember you mentioning something that, about the the feet that could be affected by Marfan. So, did you just talk me through that, because that's fascinating as well. Yeah,
1: because they, they usually have flat feet. Um, our feet, they have like a curve.
0: You yeah, know? an arch.
1: An arch, yeah, and, and they don't. So, uh, if they walk on sand, you really can see their... their. Um...
0: The sole of the foot is fully right. fully formed into, fully the in, into the
1: sand. into the sand and um, that's why it could be that the uh, shoes are worn out like that you know it's just a good guess
0: but an intriguing one Uh, because we've always had thoughts that the shoes may tell a story and maybe maybe he suffered with flat feet and and maybe the shoes where the wear pattern on the shoes may be affected by that as well so that's another little interesting nugget that we should in, include in our thoughts so
1: there's an, one other thing that i always um thought about in the mock-up why don't they put a mock-up also with the glasses mm. usually if you do mock-ups you you try to um put some you know options there and more often people also uh, usually have glasses because they have problems with their sight mm. just a thought it could be a totally different mock-up you know with the well, chin on um, deviating to the left side and glasses
0: and of course he was 50 uh, most 50 year olds wear yeah. glasses well that's interesting
1: i'm 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 happy i could help
0: no i well so am i that's really fascinating information i'm grateful
1: well thank you so much for listening to me
0: <laughs> no thank you so much for for giving you the giving me the opportunity to well josephine <laughs> what can i say i'm very very grateful for your time on that
1: No
0: problem. And and it's another brilliant example of where people who listen to the podcast get involved in the podcast. (laughs) Brilliant. Thanks, Josephine. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for downloading the podcast and for staying with the story all the way through to the end of this first season. It feels like we're reaching a natural hiatus with The Gentleman Podcast there's work to do that needs to happen in the background. From the first episode to the last episode, I think we've deepened the knowledge base and expanded the range of probabilities that need to be thought about in relation to this case. And I think we've helped the German police do that. We've also uncovered some very unusual mysteries in their own right in the journey and quite a few characters along the way. A Facebook follower, Sarah Feltham in Australia, described this week the approach to our podcast. She gave it a new name. She called it a live whodunit. And I love that description because I think that exactly encapsulates what we do. Live whodunits. And that's what we'll continue to do. So thanks, Sarah. A couple of other things to mention. Me and Ian were interviewed by Tim and Lance from the Crawlspace podcast about this case a couple of weeks ago, and that should be out on Crawlspace in a few weeks. Please look out for that. That was a really enjoyable interview to do as it always is with Tim and Lance. And also in an example of how things can come full circle, we were contacted by a journalist who works for design last week. He's working on the story and he listens to the podcast. So we've got a meeting set up with him about where we take the story next. That may end up being very useful. Now, there's been quite a lot of debate going on in Gentlemen of Heligoland HQ about how we leave things at the end of season one. We need to have a break because we've got to focus on some other things for a while and also we need to do some deep digging on some things. But equally... We all feel we're at a very important stage in the investigation and we simply didn't want to completely disappear at this point. So this is what we've decided to do. We're going to continue with a monthly update on this case just to keep the wheels turning. Now that will appear at the end of each month until we get back into season two proper in November. So there'll be a series of monthly summer or autumn specials. The first one will be released on Sunday July the 24th. But, for the last time this season, it's time to get back to the story. Because there are a couple of things that emerged this week that I need to tell you about. Do you ever have that really annoying thing happen? When, as soon as you put the phone down on somebody, you remember a very important question that you really should have asked that person. Well, that's just happened to me. There was me getting all interested in crossbites and Marfan syndrome, when there was a really important question I should have asked Josephine Narge. Did she think that the tooth loss in the photograph was caused by the incident, or was it? a much more long-term situation Unfortunately, fortunately got back to me straight away and she was sure that most of the back teeth had been gone for some time before his death and he may well have had dentures which are missing but Josephine thinks that it's very different for the front teeth where it's possible to see that the holes in the bone are still open therefore she suspects he may have lost those teeth at the time of the incident now that's important because it could imply a more violent death but it also could imply that that incident which we know caused a serious head injury there was a skull fracture may also have dislodged his front teeth and so did he fall directly face first into whatever he fell into. Now given the skull fracture and the rib fractures and now the front teeth lost in the same incident, that implies a very significant impact on something very hard. This is not simply a fall into water, I don't think. Now I wanted to bring you up to date as to where we are with the investigations that we've been working on in the last couple of weeks there's also a couple of loose ends a couple of real long shots that we've been aware of for a while but I've always ever been on the periphery of the investigation and we'll explain why but they're there and I wanted to make sure as we finished season one you were aware of everything that we're aware of so we'll talk about those as well and I thought the best way of doing that would be to invite Ian and Joe onto a call and we can discuss all these things. So a couple of days ago, we had a Zoom call. So we all sat around this hypothetical table and discussed the case, where we think it's going, and what are the things that have intrigued us most about the last 10 episodes. For the last time in season one, I've got Joe and I've got Ian with me all around this hypothetical table to talk about the work that we've been doing recently in the last couple of weeks, but also perhaps I'll get a chance to talk about some of the wider issues about the case as well. So hello Joe. hello Ian. Hello. Hello Ken. So I guess the first thing we've got to focus on is where we've got to in relation to, we call them Humber jumpers don't we, that's a little bit.
2: It was me that started that and I now feel bad about it Ken but You should never mind.
0: So, have we got any further with those? Because I know there was a couple of instances that we saw from nineteen ninety four. Have we been able to move that forward any?
2: Well, I've had um, I've had some difficulty because I've realised now that without a name, it's virtually impossible to find people who've died from jumping off the Humber Bridge when they've not been found. Because I've discovered through and it's taken me a long time to do this research that even if they are declared dead in some way you know in a ruling a death certificate is not issued and that's i'm now actually quite stymied by that so
0: So the only way really of tracking these people is not going to be through death certificates no it's probably going to be through probate
2: and that is hard because I think you're already seeing, you've got to have a name. You think of yeah. all the probates. I, I, and here's another thing. Sorry, I really thought about this, tried things out. I could type in for wills and probate, a date of death, um, 94, probate issued, oh, 99, 2001. Yeah. And your chance of getting a hit is so negligible. And plus, from the 2000s, you cannot open the probate record.
0: But you're right. I've, I think I've read that it's seven years before people can be officially declared dead when they've gone missing. OK, so we're going to have to get very lucky, I think, on our Humber jumpers, aren't we, in order to identify who they are. There may be oh, some not... ways around that. There may be some ways around that. Oh, Maybe yeah, talking to yeah. the police and people like that.
2: I certainly but, think so. I think so going to have to use our smarts
0: on this one. Yeah, we will. Well, that's why we need a bit of time to to really dig into this. Uh, It's clearly going to take quite a long time to identify any of these people. Now, I wanted to talk about a couple of people that listeners won't be aware of, but we're aware of. And for one reason or another, and we'll explain the reasoning, they've always been on the periphery of the investigation. Although there are certain aspects of them that are of interest to us. Okay, so I'm talking about the man who fell off the Rain Astrid ferry in 1994, and I'm talking about a man called Andrew Sutherland who went missing in 1992. So, what I'm going to do is read through those two newspaper reports so our listeners are aware of them, and then we'll just talk about if we can our thoughts on their relevance. So firstly, an article that is entitled Ferry Death Leap and is from Kent. And this is from the 18th of June, 1994, three weeks before the bodies found. A man died after jumping off a ferry in the English Channel. Passengers on board the Rain Astrid Ferry saw the 36-year-old man clamber over the safety rails and jump overboard last night. The ship's captain turned the ferry round in a vain bid to rescue the man. That's all it says. The second one is from 1992, November 1992. And this is what that says. Police are concerned for the safety of a 50-year-old man who's not been seen for 11 days. A spokesman said Andrew Sutherland was depressed when he disappeared from his room at the Newlands Croft Hotel in Whitley Bay. He's described as being six foot six with cropped white hair and was wearing green trousers, a grey jumper and a green three quarter length coat when he was last seen. That's all that says. So here are two people that we've not spoken about before on the podcast who are we're aware of that we wanted to make sure our listeners are aware of but there are weaknesses in both of those people being the gentleman of Heligoland. so let's deal with the man the ferryman first from kent from june 1994 any any thoughts ian uh, on on him and chances of him being our man
3: you know my thoughts on him ken I don't like him for it at all. I think he's 36, which is too young.
0: Yeah.
3: And I think he jumped jumped on the 18th of June. I don't think that's enough time to get there or be as decomposed as the gentleman was. Yeah. So I'm not a massive fan on him.
0: No and you're right. those are the the absolute weaknesses on this. He's, he's very much at the lower younger end of the of the age spectrum for this to be the right man, uh, and it's very late three weeks before for him The, the, the positive is he, he definitely jumped off a boat, and by the way, the rain astrid also had those. It could easily have hit them, and he's in the right place. You know, if if you're falling off there between it was traveling between Ostend and Randgate,
2: yeah, we think so. We think he's going to Belgium. You see, I'm thinking he actually could have been uh, a Belgian because then we don't get another mention of him in the papers. No, of course, we know. We have limited paper access. We know that. Okay. So, but I've not given up on him by any means. But because I, I, I don't want to be cynical that there is, he could get over to uh, near Heligoland in the time, possibly, 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 yeah.
3: he
2: could decomp- he could certainly decompose in that time. But on the whole, I am with Ian on this. I think I, I am,
0: too. I think, I think all of us feel that's a real long shot, just given, just given the things that Ian said there, which are absolutely right. So let's move on to Andrew Sutherland. This is a guy, again, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts. Ian, what, what's your thoughts on Andrew Sutherland? November 92, is that a little bit early?
3: I'm not sure. I, I'm much, much more intrigued by this chap because he's bang on the right age. He's six foot six.
0: That's really rare. And that's incredibly rare. We know that.
3: And he's, d- he's depressed and goes missing. Nobody's seen, it's November 92, isn't it? Mm. Nobody saw him go in or anything. So I, th- I think if he did go in in November 92, then it's, it's too early and you can rule him out. However, if he's, if he's staying in a hotel and he's not at home, and he's depressed, he could easily be mooching up and down the Northumberland coast for months before it finally gets too much for him Um, Mm. so I I guess it's a stretch it's not as straightforward as some of the other ones that we have investigated but but I I think we've got to try and uh, find out what happened to him because he's the right age and the right height he actually could walk from that hotel out to the end of the uh, the pier at Timeout and North Shields, and and go in there. Mm. So you know, and that goes
0: out a long way, doesn't it? That, uh, if way. I remember it, yeah, yeah, and it's also got some. Um, it's also got some lovely flat concrete
3: um, foundations that it's built on that you could bang your head in as you go in.
0: Okay, that's interesting. I, I think the big thing for me on him is the height. I know, and we all know, having worked on this for the last four or five months, they just don't come up very often. Six-foot-sixers going missing. We've only ever seen one, and we got very excited about him. So, uh, yeah, I think he, uh, of those two, he's the one I think we've got to really focus on moving forward. He was right that we kind of left him to last because of the date, but I think it's time for us to, uh, to take a close look at him. Okay, so, so everybody now who's listening to the podcast is pretty much up to date on everything, including those people that we've always had uh, on the sidelines. So what I want to do for the rest of this conversation, I want to take a, a slightly different approach. And uh, obviously, we've lived this. We really have lived it as well in the course of the last four, five months. There's not been a single day, I don't think, in that four or five months where we've not been working on something on this case. And communicating between ourselves on it, correct. It's been an amazing piece of of research and and a lot of hard work as well. So, what I want to do, I want to go round, do a bit of a round table here, and I want it's slightly lighter than what we'd normally do. And I want to talk. I want to get your ideas in terms of some of the things that stood out in terms of the case. I'm going to do it in terms of asking four questions. Ladies first. I'm going to go to Joe, and then I'm going to go to Ian, and I'll give you my view. So, firstly, Joe. And this is a good one for you because you've been so immersed with the research on this. What, what was your favourite discovery in this process?
2: It has been such an engaging process, I mean, as most of you know, I'm a school teacher, but I always sort of look forward to the end of the day and having done all my schoolwork and being able to get back to this, it's so interesting. Well, my favorite discovery, I think I would have to say, I don't know what you two are going to say that it was the discovery that the gentleman had shoe tied to his waist, yeah. I think it's the biggest lead we've generated, to be honest.
0: I think you're right.
2: Yeah. And that was a secret,
0: wasn't it? That was a secret.
2: I know, I know, I know, I know. I was a bit embarrassed.
0: No, I'm glad we we made that public because it wasn't the secret the German police thought it was. Because a few people knew about it. If they were lying on that.
2: Yeah, exactly, because otherwise they wouldn't. we wouldn't have found out. People wouldn't have told us about it if it had been a massive secret, you know. So, yes, no, I do agree with you. I was so glad when we learned that because it's still going to be invaluable, I think, in one way or another. Yeah. When all this comes out, it will make sense.
0: Yeah,
3: I agree. It is a lead, is a lead that we haven't been able to utilise in any way, shape or form.
0: Well, uh, that's probably for the future, isn't it? That's probably for yeah. the next episode. Yeah. So, what about you, my, Ian? What's been your yeah? My
3: well, my favourite discovery, I think, is a step earlier than that. In it was Joe's fantastic networking and detective work to discover Lars over in Hellegoland. Yeah, I think that was well, astounding.
2: I, I love Lars. So <laughs> I do. Um, I love Lars and his wife. I love his wife. Yes,
3: <laughs> well, she hasn't contributed much to the uh, podcast. I've been a bit disappointed yet, I think in Lars. That, did. <laughs> I think Lars did, uh, Lars on the scene, if you like, and very honest, motivated to to find a, a, an identity for the gentleman like we are as well. Very honest with us. Um, got himself into a bit of hot water by being so honest, I think. But, but no, finding and talking to Lars is a continuing pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was my... That was would be my one favourite discovery would be...
0: Yeah, and that and that changed a lot of our thoughts, didn't it, talking to Lars? Particularly, I think, starting to cement our view that this might not have been a murder. Uh, Absolutely. And we were right at that point then, weren't we? And Lars, Lars was very, very, very useful, I think, in terms of crystallising our thoughts around that.
2: Yes, because he also had reasons for his thoughts. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was what was so interesting. He was very... Specific about why he felt it was more likely to be a suicide, and indeed, what area the gentleman, gentleman might have committed suicide. It was very interesting.
0: Yeah,
3: I think I think he set the framework, actually, didn't he, for a lot of the investigation that we did and, and our, our work, your work on currents, Ken. Yeah, um, has that's where we got to. I, you know, I, I mean, I know we we were, we were thinking that along those lines, in amongst everything else. But certainly, having spoken to Lars uh, who who's 40, 50 years involved in this by being the main man on Hel- Heligoland, um it really steered, really steered my thoughts anyway.:
0: yeah, yes. I, I think that's true. Now my, so in terms of my favorite discoveries on this, my, it's so hard, there are so many actually. It's hard to narrow it down. In fact, I've got, I've got three. I'm going to mention three, uh, but I'm going to pick one. Uh, firstly, it was great to find Shona uh, right early on when we were doing the Canadian Michael Sterling Dean thing. Uh, oh, yes. It was great to find somebody within the police authorities who would work with us, who was open and appreciated our openness. And, and in fact, you know, that that piece of work together solved one of the oldest cases, you know. So, yes. so I, I mean, to find, to find someone who's pre- prepared to be as open as that was, was unexpected, and it, and, it was, and it was great. And I'm hoping
3: that that is just the first of Shona's cases. Yes, same.
2: I miss Shona <laughs> so, so, so
0: much. Well, it's something to revisit, I think, that. Yeah. Um, I still remember the day. I remember where I was when I found... Jan Byers' story, the oh. Trident's thing, and, and re- reading it and thinking, what's going on here? Something's yes. not, I mean, he clearly he could be the gentleman, but also if he's not the gentleman, what on earth happened on that boat? So that to me was, was an, another my I think, favorite. I, I, think I, re- I think I remember where you were when you,
3: I
2: fought. remember where you were as well.
3: You were in Lisbon, Ken, weren't you? I was yeah. in Lisbon,
0: yeah. I was in Lisbon, yeah. And
3: it was in the, raining. In the
2: rain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was
0: raining <laughs> pouring down. Couldn't do anything else, so I ended up doing this. And uh and, and it's weird, isn't it? But but I think my favourite one was right back, and again, this is one of yours, Joe, I think, right back in the day when we discovered that Thai is probably Canadian.
2: Oh yes, I'd forgotten that, you know.
0: That was a lovely piece. And that and that was a lovely piece of research and also the thing that I think made us in episode one think we can do something with this because before that we had nothing really, did we? But, but when you discovered and then we made contact with the guy in Canada who, who, who confirmed it, when we discovered that, that actually this guy's, this is, this is a Canadian made bought tie. Mm-hmm. that's a big thing and it's still a big thing. And it kind of has gotten a bit forgotten about really in, in the last yeah. nine episodes, but that's still a big thing. So I think that was a, that was a lovely discovery very early in the process that really gave us uh, uh, some in- impetus. So they're the, they're the great discoveries. Let's talk about our biggest disappointments in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the process. So Joe, uh, has there been any times in the last few months where you've, you've, you could have cried because you were so attached to that and it's proved not to be the case.
2: Yes. I mean, um, the Michael Sterling Dean story, actually I ended up finding very upsetting. I know that's not quite on the lines you're thinking here, but when I realized he wasn't the gentleman, okay. Yeah, that's a disappointment. But on the other hand, it solves a different case, but, it was the biggest sadness because I became so attached to the story of his life. Yeah. And, um, and it's, um, it's something you, it stays with you that, that you've immersed yourself in the life from him being a little boy and then trying to work out what happened to make his demise so sad in Brighton on that street yeah. with no, with nobody with nobody not his mum who must have loved him and she died that was a sadness for me obviously I'm disappointed it wasn't the gentleman so that's all I can say on that matter to be fair and this it is sad when we do follow leads because I follow lots of leads actually that I don't chat to you about because they're not the gentleman in the end and there's always sad stories you know
0: oh yeah no (laughs) doubt we we, Mm. every missing person we look at and all these files probably came to a a very sad end, and, it, and it, yeah. if you think about it too much, it can affect you. Yeah.
2: That's
0: so, Ian, uh, disappointments.
3: I think I've, I think I must have been hardened into knockbacks and and leads turning into nothing, uh, rabbit holes that you climb in and have to climb back out again by listening to thirty episodes of Fred the Head. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't <laughs> I don't see the fact that it you know Michael Dean isn't the gentleman or Jan Bear isn't the gentleman or, or or even um, Ken Rodenhurst isn't the gentleman, as being a disappointment. I think that is just the cut and thrust of us doing investigative work. If I'm honest, what I am disappointed, equally disappointed and actually affronted and astounded by, is the unwillingness of the German police or Locate international. who who are quite happy to update the information they put out for the public to try and help them solve the gentlemen of Heligoland by utilising all of our findings, and yet pay absolutely no acknowledgement whatsoever to there being any sort of outside assistance. You know, I keep going back to when we first got started, and they said that this body... Could have been dropped from a boat, or might even have jumped off the cliffs on Heligoland. But suddenly, when they when they update the information after we've talked about drifting for hundreds of kilometers and currents and everything, mm. they're they're saying oh, you could have drifted from a long way. You know, he might even have drifted from the east coast of England. <laughs> and yes, I'm thinking. Well, where did you pull yes. that
2: from? Yes, and then <laughs> the, you know they they In the updated. Last two months, yeah, they updated. to think it. They updated the information saying possibly Canada. They included that. They they updated saying he may not have been wealthy. These were in the sort of press releases they started putting out. I know. I know. And I thought, well, I'm glad they're clocking us. I'm glad they're listening to us. But good point. Well made. Honestly, I agree with you. I would have thought if
3: you want to solve it, if, if, if your view is you want to solve this missing persons case, then you would... Share information, but I mean, you know, it may be that when we got information from Lars, particularly about the shoe lasts, that that's what forced them into one hundred percent into yeah. issue information about that.
0: One hundred percent. Put it out
3: there. Mm-hmm. We are interested in solving this case, not in covering our ass not to look stupid because we haven't solved it in the last thirty years. And I think there's a strong element of that that okay. I can do.
0: Well. It's interesting. So in terms of biggest disappointments for me, I suppose my biggest disappointment, and again, Ian's absolutely right, it's not a disappointment. It's just a stone we put back again, uh, having looked underneath it. But it's human nature also to get kind of attached to explanations. I got quite attached to the explanation of Ken Rodenhurst falling off the Pride of Flanders. I liked the age, I liked the fact the car was left there. I even had a little theory about why he was going over there. When he went in, I liked the drift pattern. You know, everything seemed to add up there.
3: Because yeah. because we didn't know a name, and we worked so hard yeah. to, to try and find the name. I mean, we all got attached to that one, didn't we? Yeah. research yeah. we did made it more and more possible.
0: Yeah, because we put so much into this and spent so much time on it, when we think, actually, geez, we've actually got a chance here. When that becomes apparent that it's, it's it's not him, then, and you know you're going back to kind of first principles again, Daddy, that takes the wind out of your sails. So, yeah, I found that a bit disappointing. But, you know, onwards and upwards, That's uh, we just simply move forward. So, Joe, next category in the Gentleman Had to Go Land award ceremony is... <laughs> What do you think the best listener contribution has been? One of the beautiful things about this podcast has been how much interaction there's been with listeners, and we absolutely love that. What's been your favourite listener contribution, Joe?
2: Yes. Now, I don't like to have to pick one, and it's like at school when I've got to pick the best one, and I absolutely hate it, so I end up giving everybody a prize. But you told us to hone in on one. I did. So I am going to, despite the fact we had a range of people with very astute observations and they keep coming, very astute observations, I'm going to say Ray Mitchell because he was the first to analyse the photograph of the teeth and it was a really academic and informed analysis to get us going on the matter of the teeth. Oh, so that's
0: an interesting
2: one. Yeah, I just want to say that's just one that of many I could have picked
0: yeah, good good choice. Ian? Is it Sophie that has told us
3: about the crossbite? That's Josephine Narge. Yosefine. Sorry, Josephine. That could be phenomenal, that. Change the whole facial recognition of, of, of the gentleman. If, if there is a crossbite and he's got a twisted face, that's not on the pictures that everyone's looked at for 30 years.
2: Yes, the police will have to yet again revise their press releases.
3: Best listener contribution for me is... Mervyn Stutter, he probably didn't realise he was handy for Ipswich until his uh, daughter Zoe volunteered him, press ganged him, into (laughs) driving all the way to Ipswich to have a look through the the microfiche at the Suffolk archive. But that's quite a drive, and he stuck with it. And of course, the, the reward was that he found the one newspaper page that we couldn't find, uh, which named the guy who had gone missing from the Pride of Flanders. And we'd still be looking now if Mervyn hadn't made that trip. So I yeah, think that true. that was uh, definitely a very significant contribution made by Zoe as well, who had the vision to know that she could bully her dad into doing that.
2: Yes. And the thing is, looking through microfiche is very painstaking. You know, I had to do a lot of that when I was writing my doctorate and it's you can't miss anything and it's a very... Painstaking, precise, laborious job. So, a big thank you to him.
0: Yeah, it was a big one. And uh, you, were, you mentioned earlier how difficult it is without a name to get any kind of closure. So, the fact that well, in fact, I remember the day when we got that name. It took us less than an hour to work out it wasn't him. But without him, yeah. yes. we could never do it. So, yeah, that was a big contribution, uh, Mervin. Really appreciate that. I suppose my there's been so many, haven't there? And, it, and it, as Joe was saying earlier, it's kind of, it's almost mealy mouth to pick any any individual one. I think there are a couple that, that definitely stood out for me in terms of, well, one, the speed of the reaction. I remember when we found those German uh, newspaper reports that had the face in them and all that kind of thing, but we needed to get them translated really quick, and none of us speak German. And there's so much of it so when we put a bit of a a request out on facebook and people dived on that and within 12 hours we had everything translated and that was really useful for us because you know when you're doing a podcast that has to go out every two weeks time really is of the essence and people were brilliant about that so uh and certain over in the us fiona melrose in ireland Um, Yes,
2: and a gentleman, I think, or it could have been a lady who translated a lot of Dutch for us too, for one of our um, tracks. Um, Yeah, Uh,
0: Leonie Welberg, I know, also found some some really interesting documentation as well. So I mean, those people definitely are, are right up there. I did, I have to say, Uh, Josephine Nard, who I've spoken to this week about the crossbite and things. Ian mentioned it as well. That could end up being extremely important. And You guys haven't actually heard the interview yet, but when you hear the interview, she's very clear and she's very certain about certain things. I like that when I talk to people. And Uh, she's
3: Hungarian as well, isn't
0: she? Well Nodge is a Hungarian name and uh, yeah I've definitely uh, I've already broached the subject of Fred the Head with her because uh no, that's got course, her again, to be again definitely. So so yeah Josephine definitely there. The other guy I think we need to mention is uh Tom Bays, Satraman, who I call him Satraman. Sounds like he's a kind of a superhero yeah, but he- his <laughs> own
3: super, his own superhero uh, name from the web from the Facebook page was Old Shoe Guy yeah that's right i
2: it's thought totally he meant anyway. that he was old and oh and then i realized i'd done a faux pas later he didn't mean that at all he meant no. that he studied old shoes
0: <laughs> yeah shoe which, which old is, shoe guys not much of a superhero, superhero name though is it satramani is far better in my opinion but anyway chombe who now is a listener i know so he started off as as an expert and uh, and he still is an expert uh but he also is now an expert listener. <laughs> So uh, thanks to Tom as well. So any one of them, uh, very happy to get the gold, gold star on that one. So, uh, so there are those three things that I want to go through. I suppose the one thing we've got to finish with is what our current hypothesis is individually. And they're probably, they might be similar. But if if in an, in a minute, if you could describe as we stand at this point in time, and of course, it might change radically by the end of series two, but as we stand at the end of season one, Joe, what do you think happened?
2: Well, I think he jumped off a ferry, not a bridge, due to his injuries. And I'm no expert, but I think there needs to be something he's banged against, really, apart from water, um, even to get the the hat brim line i always get these words wrong is that what it's called
0: the Hat-brim Hat-brim line, yeah.
2: yeah so i'm thinking a ferry not a bridge i'm thinking probably a foot passenger and so he wouldn't have been noticed as not disembarking if that makes sense because somebody actually on the group flagged up that and i remember this you could disembark from a ferry if you were a foot passenger and nobody was bothered. Nobody was taking account or ticking off your name. And so his, the fact that he hadn't disembarked would not have been reported or even logged. I still Later on think, though,
3: Joe, on that, later on he yeah. would be reported missing and he would last have been known last that he was travelling on a ferry.
2: I'm, yeah, I'm, but no, now here's my other thing. I don't think he was reported as missing at all. I think in some way he was a person who didn't have a sort of um, a family that, you know, and that possibly his landlord, if he had a landlord, really sort of wrote it off, wasn't bothered. You know, he might have had his own little business, but nobody, you know, really sort of thought much of it to sort of say, we wonder where he's gone and report it to the police. I do still think he had a Canadian connections, you know. I've been doing more re- research on Canadian and French labels and things, but, you know, that's just to, of my own interest. So that's where I am at the moment.
3: UK-based Michael Dean.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, makes a lot of sense. Ian, wh- what are you
3: thinking? Uh, I, I won't dispute Joe's theory at all. However, I think it's more likely that he's... committed suicide definitely um off either a bridge or a cliff or a pier um and then floated across the north sea english channel north sea to Hello land Mm -hmm. um but that's as much as i can say really yeah Uh, i don't i don't want to guess about whether he's got any family or not i think he might be a bit transient because we can't find any missing people but i like I've come across again, if somebody has was reported missing in ninety four and declared dead in two thousand and one, we're unlikely to pick up anything now about a missing person, even though for the police would say that those cases are never closed. there's nothing about them in any of the missing persons' lists or the or the individual constabulary's missing persons' lists so i don't know, I think we've just got to um I think we've just got to scour the lope the the contemporary newspapers, and follow each individual missing person. I think,
0: uh, I think that's a pretty good strategy. and uh, very, very similar. Obviously, I've heard the same evidence as you two, and it's not surprised that we've all come to similar things. I, I think he was a man down on his luck. I, I don't think he's a well-to-do person. I think the whole gentleman thing is a complete red herring. I think, uh, I think this is a man actually probably put his best bib and tucker on to do himself in. I like that idea. Lars came up with that. This was a man preparing for the afterlife by, by making sure he was wearing his best stuff when he was found. I think, I think there's something in that. I think he had yeah. f- few friends. I think he had f- few family. I don't think he was widely missed. So that's not going to help us, but I think that's probably the truth. I think he was definitely connected to shoe repair. I think those shoe lasts were his. I don't think anyone else was involved. I think that's what he lived with day by day, what he, how he made his money, and that's what went with him. There was probably some value in them to him, probably some sentimental value as well. He probably sat there one day, mending some shoes, thinking, if I ever do myself in, this is how I will weigh myself down. So I think that's probably the, the situation. It obviously got too much for him, decided to end his life. I'm kind of quite taken by the Humber, I mean, the Humber is a real hot spot for suicides. Uh, it
2: was that year, as we've oh, said already. It,
0: it, it is every year. And uh, yeah. it's by far the most active uh, suicide spot in the UK. And, you know, it also happens to be the closest place as the crow flies to Heligoland. It would have gone straight over uh, if he had managed to go into the sea. And you do manage to go into the sea when you jump off the Humber because it's right in the estuary. So, yeah, it was suicide. He fell from considerable height. He does have to have hit something on the way down. There's no question about that. His injuries won't have come purely from uh, hitting water, however high he came from. Mm. Certainly, at Humber Bridge, you wouldn't have. But I think once he'd hit something, he was out cold, probably dead, slipped into the water, drifted away. I think it happened between March and May 1994, probably, on the East Coast or in the Channel. And he then just drifted slowly, and particularly when he overcame the buoyancy overcame the last and he hit the surface, he would have moved quite quickly because that was remember a year where the tides and the, f- and the flow of water was quite rapid due to this strange climactic scenario in 1994. Sorry to interrupt,
3: Ken, there which we haven't looked at yet, and this is another reason why we'll have to. It's actually easier if somebody's gone in from France or Holland or Germany even to float to where he was found and we've not looked at anybody or any bridges or any piers on that side of the channel where somebody could have
0: gone in that's very true I and mean, maybe we do need to broaden our search into uh into certainly the north uh, of europe uh, just going back to something joe said i still think is true i think there is a canadian connection I do think that tie is a bigger clue than we've kind of maybe associated with it more recently. There's a tendency, I think, for us, what kind of, they call it recency bias, don't they, where you focus on the newest things you've discovered rather than the oldest things you've discovered. I think that tie is quite a clue. I, don't, I think it's very unusual in terms of where it's come from. And I think that and his height, this is why I can't believe our man Michael Sterling Dean wasn't the man. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, think, I think there is a very strong Canadian connection. So, yeah, that's where I am. So I think we're all pretty much in the same place and just looking forward like mad to where we go from here, really.
2: Yes, absolutely.
3: Where do we go from here, Ken?
0: I've explained, by the way, in my little midsection that, that we would had a bit of a uh, conversation about this in uh, Gentlemen of Haligoland Towers about whether we simply stop it for six months and come back in November and a very strong case was was put forward by yourself Ian that Mm. actually were it such a critical phase that would be madness let's keep it going on a keep the wheels turning on it so we can uh, keep people informed as as we discover things
3: good I think that's sensible I think we might get a lot more listeners when the crawlspace interviews put out in America. True. I think that there might be a lot more listeners in Europe once the man from Design writes up whatever he writes up after we talk to him on Sunday. And I just think if we had disappeared until November, then, you know, effectively all we're doing is, is taking four weeks instead of two weeks to put the next one out. So we are still here.
0: I, agree.
2: I think the big thing is each one of us has to leave our paid jobs and just do this all the time and live in a caravan
0: <laughs>
2: because then and you know, know we've got to pay for is the internet. Obviously we need that. Then we could actually, you know, continue at full, full weight with the uh, juggling with all the things we're doing. Just give up our paid jobs really. Okay. Well, I, only have about, I only have about 10 or 12
3: hours of financial advice to do each week. So I'm not right. doing that anyway.
2: It's
0: the living in the caravan that I'm a bit nervous about. Uh, I reckon right, so, uh, so, I reckon they'd be looking for three dead bodies within about...
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, within yeah about... well, I'd kill Ian within seconds, to be oh. fair.
0: So that was season one. I hope you enjoyed it. We got far, far further than certainly I expected to when we set out on this journey. A lot of that goes down to Joe and to Ian for the contribution they've made to this podcast. And I think we've narrowed the possibilities down pretty successfully I think we've got a clear idea also on how we move forward so we won't be disappearing there'll be a new episode being released monthly so make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're notified when that happens but don't forget to join us also on the mysterious case of Fred the Head podcast when that starts again in July because that promises to be very intriguing But please continue to add your theories and ideas to the Facebook page. There's been some very interesting content on there recently. But until next time, enjoy the summer and have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis.